Welcome to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, a nonprofit organization that exists to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, United States Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. This podcast explores and examines contemporary and historic issues of equality, fairness, and justice with a Jacksonian lens. Through in-depth conversations with experts, innovators, and those doing the the boots-on-the-ground work, I am your host, Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center. This episode is drawn from a program we did in partnership with the Harry S. Truman Presidential Library and Museum on October 7, 2021. Hello, I'm Morgan Jorgensen, the Donor Relations and Events Manager for the Truman Library Institute. Welcome to the 75th anniversary of Nuremberg. Today, we're joined by an illustrious panel of historians. Moderating the program this evening, we have the Director of the Truman Library, Kurt Graham, and the president of the Robert H. Jackson Center, Kristen McMahon. Our panelists are John Q. Barrett, professor of law at St. John's University in New York City and a board member at the Robert H. Jackson Center, and Joseph A. Ross, teaching assistant professor and University of North Carolina's Peace, War, and Defense Curriculum. Kurt, Kristen, John, and Joseph, Thank you all for joining us. We'll take written audience questions throughout the program using the Q&A feature in the Zoom control panel. You can also like a question that you would like to see answered. One last thing before I turn the program over to our panelists. Please join me in wishing Dr. Graham a very happy birthday. Kurt, thank you for spending your night with us. Well, thank you, Morgan. I, uh, I appreciate that. We're not going to be taking any, any guesses about age or anything, too. We'll just let that fly. Morgan told me a little bird told her that it was my birthday today, and uh, I told her to remind that bird that hunting season is just around the corner, so uh, be careful. You never know what could happen. Anyway, it's a great pleasure to be here with these distinguished uh, panelists, authorities on this topic, uh, one that I think is really important in our own time. I am just so amazed at how many times we go back to questions that were confronted in the Truman era and realize their relevance to us today. And, uh, and this, this is no exception. I think this is, is a groundbreaking uh, moment uh, in, in international history and, and one that uh, I hope we can delve into and, and really get to know more about. I wanna start by uh, speaking with my friend and colleague, Kristen McMahon, who uh, we have done programs together that she uh, directs the Jackson Center, uh, the Robert Jackson Center in Jamestown, New York, beautiful location. I've been there and we've done programs together there. We've done some other virtual kinds of things, and so it's been uh, uh, it's been a great uh, relationship in that regard. But what what brought us together was this this notion that Jackson and Truman shared this um, uh, event, I guess you would say, uh, in history, and it was commemorated both at the Jackson Center and here with a bust of uh, by by well known and, and very accomplished artist Dexter Benedict. A uh, gift of Don and Chris Wortman, both to the Jackson Center and a copy to us as well here that proudly displayed here at the Truman Library. 
and uh, very grateful for that uh, patronage and that support that really drew our two organizations into, the, into an orb where we started doing some of these things together. Except we don't do everything together. Kristen is just back from a trip to Nuremberg. Uh, I was not invited. And I, I I, I'm sorry, myself. if I had known it was your birthday, I, <laughs> yeah. would, I would have. I'm so sorry. We, 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 I could have <laughs> taken a trip to Europe. That, that, that's, that's good. Well, maybe next year. You know, it, it happens the same day every year. So you might want to make fair. Note. That's fair. I will remember that's from fair. now on. Well, um, you and some of your Jackson Center board members and, and uh, uh, supporters uh, recently went to uh, Europe went to Nuremberg to uh, not celebrate, that's not the right word, but to acknowledge and commemorate this, uh, the anniversary of this important moment in international history. Tell us a little bit about why you went, what you found there, and just a little bit about how your own thinking as someone steeped in this history, uh, what did you come away with that you maybe didn't have before? Yes, yeah, so I think for me, and I think for most people, walking in history's footsteps is particularly poignant to be able to put yourself in the place of the people and in the spaces really helps provide that context makes it feel more real to you mm -hmm. and in my case certainly helps me understand the significance of the event so um we spent some time in munich and in nuremberg since those are two uh cities in germany obviously that were very important to the Nazis and to the, the Third Reich and therefore to Jackson and, and to Truman and, and the end of this uh, experience as well. And to get a sense of the scope of what uh, the Nazis had built in Nuremberg, which is enormous. The, these buildings are, are massive. It was Nuremberg was planned to be the city of the Reich rallies. And so they needed everything to be able to fit hundreds of thousands of people, um, because that is what they thought that those, those crowds would be. And then to see the smallness of the courtroom and have an understanding of, of that historic moment to, to be able to visualize the prisoners in the dock, in the courtroom, and get what their perspective must have been from the witness stand. And then also to visualize where Justice Jackson would have stood in the courtroom and to hear his voice echo through there. Um, we have spent a good portion of this last year and launched this past spring an audio archeology span project where the, um, the audio of the trials is available uh, on our website. And so those are the voices that were ringing in my head when I was standing in that courtroom. Mm -hmm. Then there's a great irony there. And I, I've not been uh, to the location, so I don't, I, I, I'm just visualizing this as you describe it, but it's very interesting to think of what the Nazis planned and, and their own you know, thoughts and dreams of the future uh, centered in Nuremberg. And this is where it kind of all came undone for those who had sort of orchestrated that. I had never, I was unaware that the, the, the sort of, uh, everything sort of came together there in those cross currents. That's a, that's a very interesting point that that small little courtroom uh, played a much bigger role than, than, the, than the big buildings that they had planned. Yep, absolutely. Nuremberg was one of five cities that the uh, Nazis were calling Fuhrer cities. And so mm -hmm. those were those were the cities of particular importance. And so, um, and, you know, historically, Nuremberg, in case people don't know, it's, it's located just sort of north center of Bavaria, uh, about 100 miles or 150 kilometers from Munich, about 270 miles, 440, 450 kilometers from Berlin, 
So that gets you a sense of how far it was away from the other major metropolitan areas, both today and of that time. And you know, symbolically, the Nuremberg Laws were enacted there in 1935, which uh, officially revoked German citizenship from the Jewish people and any non-Aryans. Uh, and so one of the reasons Nuremberg was chosen to host these uh, trials was, although a large part of the city itself was destroyed, the Palace of Justice, which housed the courtrooms, and the jail right behind it were largely unscathed. Um, they were outside of the medieval city center. Uh, there had been, I think, one bomb that had landed in a courtyard there, but otherwise there was very minimal damage. And so this was a very easily contained area. Um, they built a walkway from the jail to uh, the courthouse uh, that they covered. So you couldn't see when prisoners were in there to move. And so all of this is part of what you learn and experience when you go to the museum there in Nuremberg as well. So it really gives you a full concept and, and context for, for this trial. You know, I just was curious that the context, I'm not going to ask you about any Bavarian beverages or anything that may have, uh, that, that you may have uh, come to enjoy, but I just wonder what, what did you take away? I mean, obviously you learned a lot in terms of just, I mean, obviously being in, in a place, in a physical place where something happened, you, you just picture it so much more clearly. And so obviously the details of what happened are more clear in your mind, I'm sure, than they were before. But, but what are some of the feelings or some of the impressions that you took away from that, you know, sort of standing in history, as you, as you put it early on? Uh, how did that change how you look at Jackson, how you look at your job, how you look at the importance of telling the story? So it only reinforced the importance of this for me. Uh, on our first day in Nuremberg, we were doing a bit of walking to orient ourselves and we were in a market area and a gentleman in the market heard us speaking English and so asked if we were Americans and what had brought us to, to Nuremberg. And we were explaining to him that we were there commemorating the end of the Nuremberg trials. And he looked at our group and said without any irony, the Nuremberg trials, what were those? And I flabbergasted. This is someone who lives in Nuremberg, wow. who, who seemed to have no concept of the city's history of this. And I asked one of our tour guides um, the next day, I said, is this common? And she said, in this area, and, and she felt around the world as well, she said, people aren't paying attention to this anymore. And so it is she wasn't sure whether it was willful ignorance or just you're going about your lives daily. It's not something that really factors into your life today. And so those lessons that, that were so prominent and prevalent 75 years ago are fading and that can't happen um, because we, we run such a risk of losing the foundations that enabled this to happen, of losing the understanding of why this can never happen again. Yeah, no, very, very well put. That, that's excellent. That's, uh, that's great. Well, I wanted to turn to, um, uh, to, to Joseph and John and ask a little bit about um, the, the notion of having an international tribunal. This, is, this has got to be unique. I mean, nations had not come together, to my knowledge, to, to try people in this way before. Why did they choose, why did the allies choose to hold this kind of international tribunal? And, and did they have other alternatives? What, what if they hadn't chosen to do this? Were there other ways they could have dealt with this? Uh, Joseph, do you want to take us through that a little bit? I can give you a long answer, or <laughs> I, can try to, I can try to keep it brief. Uh, so uh, just to touch on something you said, Kurt, 
there had been attempts to have international trials after World War One. Mm-hmm. Um, most of those trials were considered failures for different reasons. But when when Jackson and the different Americans, uh, the different allies, come together after World War Two to create the Nuremberg, the International Military Tribunal, the Nuremberg trial, they they are aware. They are aware of those previous attempts to have an international trial after World War One, and they're very much determined not to make the same mistakes. So for them, it's really about the Allies were able to defeat the Germans. So the Soviet Union marches in from the east and then the other Allies from the west, and they're occupying the country. Uh, lots of different Nation, the nations have all the different prisoners in their custody. And so the idea here is to have some kind of some kind of trial because what, what, what were the alternatives? In, in decades, centuries past, people would just be executed without any courtroom justice whatsoever. And Jackson and, and many other American participants were very clear that they didn't, they didn't want to do that. That doesn't seem like something that they should be participating in. That's something that maybe the Nazis would do, but they should not be doing that. Um, and Jackson sort of ironically writes, well, the other option is to just let them go. <laughs> but that's not a real possibility. They're not really considering that. So then you're just left with, if we're not going to execute them, we're certainly not going to let them go. Then we have to hold a trial. And uh, when you go back to 1943, when Churchill and Roosevelt and Stalin met in Moscow, they created a kind of a blueprint that if there were Germans who had been suspected of committing crimes in lots of different places, if there wasn't a specific geographical location, then they will be dealt with by the allies as a whole. So that, that's my long answer to your yeah. short question. Just as, as you said that, suspected of committing crimes, how in a tribunal like that, how, and this is, I'm sure this is a much longer answer too, but just if there's a, a brief way to say, what's the difference between a crime, a war crime and an act of war? I mean, when you're, when you're in war, you know, people are getting killed, people are having happening. What, what, what is it? Where, where is that line? Is, is there a definition that's fairly straightforward that, that, that everybody there, even the soldiers in the, in the trenches and in the field should have understood? Well, everybody by World War II understands you do not uh, mistreat prisoners of war. Mm-hmm. Um, civilians are not supposed to be targeted. Uh, or members of the Red Cross, different medical workers. Uh, mm-hmm. You're not supposed to be targeting hospitals. All of those things can be considered or are considered war crimes. At the, uh, at the Nuremberg trial, there is a very specific definition of war crimes. That was one of the charges brought against the, the defendants. And it includes all of those things as well as wanton destruction of public and private property, which a lot of that boils down to all the different bombing campaigns that took place during the war. Um, so that so there is there is a definitional difference there between acts of war and then what's called a war crime. Right, right. 
right, good. Um, John, when, um, when Harry Truman was out of office, he, the, these trials meant a lot to him. He was very, I think, proud of the legacy that had been established that he was a part of and Justice Jackson and of course, lots of other people and other nations. But, but he, he, he did a, an interview where he said, uh, never again will men be able to say, I was just following orders. And I think in Truman's mind, that was a very important uh, bit of progress that was made as a result of the work that, that Jackson had done in, in Nuremberg. Uh, could you comment on that a little bit? What, I'm, I'm kind of want to get into the players here. What, what did this mean to Truman? What did it mean to Jackson, to their personal legacies, and just to their personal commitment to the cause of justice? Well, there are many protagonists and leading figures in this project. Uh, but on the American side, the president, who obviously chose the path, a path between the two other options that Joseph described of summary brutal executions of a handful or dozens or hundreds or thousands of Nazis who were the cause of the war or just letting them slink away, um, rejecting both of those alternatives and choosing instead to bring a legal framework and individual adjudication to this process is really Truman's decision. Mm -hmm. uh, so he you know, fully gets credit. He's the US boss. Um, he recruits Robert Jackson, a sitting US Supreme Court justice, mm -hmm. uh, really to kind of skip out on the court. Um, it was April of 1945 and the summer recess was appointing and uh, 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 impending. And Jackson was a notoriously quick writer and he was largely done with his work for the term. So it was kind of a summer job. Uh, <laughs> and Jackson was really the leading legal figure in the United States. He'd been the mm -hmm. U.S. Attorney General. He'd been the Solicitor General. He'd been on the Supreme Court for four years. And although he was not the Chief Justice, um, he really was uh, first among equals, if I may mm -hmm. put it that way, um, and a unique high stature appointment. And so Truman borrows Jackson or asks Jackson to take this on. And Jackson patriotically accepts the request and takes on this very hard assignment, uh, vastly underestimating how quick it will be. He thinks it'll kind of be summer into the fall of 1945, and then he'll be back to the Supreme Court. It takes a whole additional year, mm -hmm. and it's October of 1946 when he returns to the court. But it matters so much to, to both of them, and frankly, to the United States, and to the alliance that we've been part of, because we had won a war against aggression. And that's the sort of threshold crime, the central crime, and the formative experience for both of them in those first four decades of the 20th century. I mean, Harry Truman, literally a soldier in the Great War, Robert right. Jackson, not a soldier, but a young man, a young lawyer of that generation. Uh, and frankly, Germany had done it and caused it as an aggressor mm -hmm. in 1914. And now in 1939 and forward, Germany had done it again. What had formally changed between those two points in time is that treaty commitments, including by Germany, had forsworn war. War had become illegal on the pledges and the promises of national leaders. And then Germany breached those commitments. So the idea was that these arch criminals, these decision makers uh, who started it had violated interna international law. And those are the people brought into the dock. And they are not permitted to invoke the historic claims that superiors say it's my prerogative to wage war and underlings say I was just following orders, which means nobody's accountable. Right. Both of those are now 
legal progress areas where people can be held accountable. And the question is, do you deliver on it? Truman took it seriously. He appointed a leading American figure that encouraged the British to do the same, the Soviets to do the same, the French to do the same, and those four nations to really get this project to the launching pad and then go through the hard work of um, doing it over the course of the next year. So it, it mattered enormously. Yeah, it mattered. I, I can understand that from Truman's perspective. Can, can one of you tell us what um, what did this mean to Jackson? Did he, I mean, you you, you describe him, John, as, as the leading jurist, perhaps of his, of his generation, of his time, maybe not chief justice, but certainly someone. And I was thinking, you know, he's well-respected, but I was thinking back in earlier periods of history where Supreme Court justices were given assignments. I mean, think of the I mean, early on in the 1790s, John Jay goes to negotiate the Jay Treaty. You know, I mean, it's and he's a he's the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. I mean, it's hard for me to envision today the president calling a justice and saying, "I've got an assignment for you. I need you to drop what you're doing at the court. I need you to fly to Europe. I need you to, you know, do this, negotiate this, or negotiate that." I just don't I see that happen. But it's, it, but it's not that far in our past. I mean, the the yeah. Warren Commission after JFK's assassination. Is of mm -hmm. course Chief Justice Earl yeah. Warren. That's probably the last, the last time. Um, but the the quip is that only two populations, school children and Supreme Court justices, get a summer vacation. Yeah. Uh, so that uh, you know they're they're super talented leading figures, and oh. in a special spot, that is a talent pool to draw on. And yes, from John Jay to Earl Warren, with Robert Jackson and Harlan Stone and Charles mm -hmm. Evans Hughes and Owen Roberts, lots of justices took special extracurricular assignments. Yeah, and this could, and, and you're saying that given that history and, and given the, the, the talent in that pool even still, that something like that could conceivably happen again, that a president- Yeah, although our, 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 it's off our topic a little bit, but the type of person appointed to the Supreme Court today is much more a, a legal specialist, right. a judge, an appellate judge, and less of a political figure. You know, Jackson had been a cabinet officer and had been right. confirmed by the Senate four times before he was confirmed for the Supreme Court. So it, it might be a different talent set these days. Yeah, yeah. What, what did it, um, so, so talk a little bit, uh, one of you, uh, about, uh, about Jackson and kind of his frame of mind as he was getting ready to take on this assignment. Was he surprised by the call? Was he excited it was about out, it? it? It was completely out of the blue. Mm -hmm. uh, the president sends his White House counsel, Sam Rosenman, uh, mm -hmm. who first calls and says, I want to talk to you about something. And Jackson says, come up to the Supreme Court. And Rosenman does. This is late April of 1945. Mm -hmm. And Rosenman lays out the, the general commitment that the Allies had made that after the peace was won and the Germans were defeated and Hitler and his inner circle were captured, that together we, the Allies, would hold them accountable. Mm -hmm. So really, the job offer is to prosecute Adolf Hitler, who we're about to capture. Um, and this is April 25, April 26, 1945, April 30th, Hitler commits suicide. And most of the inner inner circle is also, um, you know, soon dead or at least missing. Uh, right. But a couple are part of the uh, what ultimately ends up being the defendants at Nuremberg. Jackson mm -hmm. regards this as um, a kind of patriotic service, but also as the supreme uh, legal assignment and opportunity that a lawyer could be asked to undertake. It is a law project. It's not a military project. The firing squad would be a military project. Right. And it's not some kind of, you know, economic settlement buy your future and slink away. Any negotiator could do that. This is asking somebody to really deliver 
our system of law and a lot of our fair trial constitutional concepts to this international stage. Mm -hmm. And to do it in this area of holding war aggressors, world war causing aggressors accountable with an eye towards adjudicating and punishing them, but also frankly to creating a precedent that will deter people from behaving in this way because we can't survive a third world war. Right. That's really the mindset. So, so this hmm. is not a small project. This is a very big right. law project. Right. And Jackson is a very big law talent. And uh, you know he's immediately extremely interested and also daunted by this project. Well, then had to be aware that this was a this was a legacy opportunity for him as well, not just Completely. for the country. And Kurt, uh, if I can interject for a moment, do um, I encourage everybody to look over Jackson's opening statement at the Nuremberg trial? Uh, the entire thing is quite lengthy. It took Jackson about four hours to read the whole thing in court, but he really uses some powerful language, even in the first couple of paragraphs, that gives you a glimpse of his mindset that this is an opportunity for you know, rational people and, and reasonable laws to bring justice against people who were completely uninterested in right. laws and justice. Right. Um, Joseph, could you, could you tell us, I know you've, as a professor, you've taught these trials in, in, in the classroom. Uh, I want to turn to one of the questions I, th I think is kind of interesting. I want, I want you to give us a little bit of just how the, what the charges were, who the defendants were, just kind of lay out what this courtroom situation was like. But I want to turn to a question to set it up. Uh, the, and the question says, the movie Judgment at Nuremberg is certainly an entertaining and dramatic film, but is it fairly close to the historical reality of what actually occurred there? Uh, it's, it's been a while since I've seen that film. Um, so it's, it's not based on the first Nuremberg trial. Like we're talking about the International Military Tribunal uh, from 45 to 46. It's kind of loosely based on one of the subsequent Nuremberg trials that comes later. Um, and so I can't remember all the details, but it's, yeah, it's, can... not, it's not as closely connected to the first one mm -hmm. as people might think. Yeah, it, but it, it, it's very true to the, the justice case. Uh, which is the trial of the Nazi judges and prosecutors who basically oh. in the form of law were committing executions of enemies of the state. Uh, it was a, ironically a trial in courtroom 600 at Nuremberg of people who had been Nazi jurists, including in courtroom 600 at Nuremberg, running, you know, trumped up trials to execute political enemies. And the, the script, the screenplay very much does track the record of that case. Uh, mm -hmm. But that's a 1947-1948 prosecution. Mm -hmm. Although they did like some of Justice Jackson's language so much that they pilfered it wholesale and gave mm -hmm. it to Spencer Tracy to say. True. Yeah. Um, so, so, so talk about that then, uh, about the courtroom, not so much Spencer Tracy, but about, about the the... You know, what were the charges specifically? What were these people? And there was obviously there's more than one defendant. Uh, this is kind of a, a kind of an interesting setting, at least the way we picture court dramas unfolding is there's a, a single defendant who's, you know, kind of coming to this moment of truth of guilty or not. And uh, and in this case, you've got I, I think you told me earlier, Joseph, there were 21 who were actually seated in the courtroom uh, facing the, the, the trial. Give us give us a little rundown and kind of set the scene for us. What was going on in that room? 
Okay, so there are four charges and not all the defendants are indicted on all the charges. Some of them are, but the four charges, and they are numbered. So count one is conspiracy or a common plan to wage aggressive war, commit war crimes, crimes against humanity. So the first charge is conspiracy. Uh, the second charge is crimes against peace, which is what John was mentioning that countries had come together in 1928 with the Kellogg-Briand Pact to make war essentially illegal. Mm -hmm. And so crimes against peace draws heavily from, from that time period. Then you have count three, which is war crimes, and count four is crimes against humanity, which really, from our perspective, uh, is addressing the Holocaust. Now, at that time, their understanding of the Holocaust was very different, but it, it crimes against humanity, it talks about atrocities, extermination, deportations, terrible things that were happening uh, under the Nazi regime. So there are 21 German defendants in the courtroom and some of them face all the charges. Everybody faces count one. So everybody's gonna be indicted on count one for conspiracy. And then they get some combination of the other ones after that. But the, the face of the Nazis is Hermann Goering, who was up until the very end of the war, he was the, the Reich Marshal. He was Hitler's second in command uh, until the very end when Hitler got mad at him and threw him out of the party. But Goering is still alive after the war, whereas, as John said, a lot of the inner circle are dead or missing. So he really becomes the face of, of a lot of the trial. You have other individuals, too, from the military, German military members who uh, are facing uh, charges of committing war crimes and crimes against peace. Um, you have someone like Albert Speer, who was Hitler's favorite architect, who was also uh, in, in the defendant's dock. Julius Streicher, who was just a horrible anti-Semitic racist. Um, and uh, lots of different, lots of different people who were high ranking, highly influential mm -hmm. people within the Third Reich in some way. But each of these individuals is going to be charged and tried individually in this large courtroom. And, and this is, at the very beginning at least, this is a very big international event. Uh, reporters from all over are covering it. One of the things that um, I'm glad that Kristen talked about how the Palace of Justice was mostly unscathed. Um, and that's true. But the Allies also decided that they needed to renovate the courtroom some just to make space for members of the press, because they wanted to have uh, enough people there to cover this event and make sure that people around the world knew what was taking place there. And so there's, there's four different nations, the Americans, the British, the French, and the Soviet Union. They each have their own prosecution teams, and they each send their own teams of judges. I particularly focus on the American judges in my research and work but um, that's just sort of the scene. And one of the greatest things for me as a historian studying the Nuremberg trial is that it was filmed. And so you can watch actual film from 1945 and 46 and see what was happening in the courtroom during that time.
Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I have to compliment Joseph on his uh, backdrop. Uh, alas, he's not in Nuremberg, but it looks like he's in courtroom 600. Yeah. Yeah. And right over his shoulders, you see the, the seating stretching back. They expanded the courtroom and that really is the press gallery on the ground level. And mm -hmm. above his ears, you see the balcony. Uh, they broke through and they built that. And that was VIP seating and also overflow for reporters. Um, so it was being covered in many, many newspapers around the world on a daily basis. And there was also newsreel footage being filmed by the Army Signal Corps. And on the, as we're looking at Joseph, on the right side of the screen, you see sort of a camera port in one side of the courtroom wall. And over his right shoulder on the left side of our screen, you see a, a camera box in the back. And there were also camera ports in the front. Um, film was expensive. And so they didn't film gavel to gavel. They recorded gavel to gavel, and that's the uh, sound archaeology project that Kristen described. But the 50 or so hours of filming across the 10 months of the trial are you know, widely available, and you should uh, troll around on YouTube and see passages of the trial, um, including some of the Jackson opening statement in November 1945, some of his closing in July of 1946. Uh, and many spots of witness examinations and judicial uh, control of the proceedings. Mm -hmm. uh, Kristen, one of the one of the questions we're, we're getting is uh, uh, that one of the criticisms of the trials was that they were victors' justice. Is that something? How do how do you at the Jackson Center representing you know Justice Jackson's legacy? How do you how do you deal with that? How do you how do you think about that? Or or is it important to think about? I just I think that's a Kind of an interesting question. What does that mean that uh, that we have a, a situation here of victor's justice? Well, I, I think both Joseph and John have spoken a little bit about this during the course of this conversation as well. But uh, to Jackson's way of thinking, and especially because of the Kellogg-Briand Pact, you know, their part of the criticism had been that this law was, you know, the Germans didn't know that this was illegal, uh, mm -hmm. and so he he made the argument. Um, and reflected on this repeatedly that, um, first of all, there were treaties in place. And so there was there was a very specific written language that said this was illegal, but that also just your common understanding of, of humanity um, would, would help you understand that this, this type of aggressive war would not be legal. Um, you know, he... He to Kurt, you had said that Truman had said never again. And Jackson had a similar thought in that, and he reflected on this, I think it was about three years after uh, after the, the close of the trial it was in 1949. And he was talking to the Canadian Bar Association. And he said something along the lines of, it's still too early to know what Nuremberg's influence will be. Um, and he didn't think the trials alone would be enough to prevent future wars, but he did think it forever laid to rest the idea that war, all war must be regarded as legal and just. And he made a particular analogy that the, the law imposes personal responsibility for starting a street riot, but it imposes none for inciting and launching a world war. And so he thought that the, if the trials accomplished nothing else, it was that it, it put to rest the fact that statesmen could assume they could wage war with impunity. Mm -hmm. yes. But of course, the, the trial did accomplish you know, that and so much more. It did accomplish something else. 
Um, and I think it's important drawing on President Truman's comment never again to talk directly about the Holocaust. That's not a word that they had in 1945, 1946. It's not knowledge that they fully had until the Nuremberg trials really developed the evidentiary record mm -hmm. of Nazi extermination. Um, you know, there was knowledge of concentration camps. The Nazis bragged about those intra-German control measures for political enemies. And those places turned into horrible uh, and murderous facilities. But those German locations, concentration camps, if you will, were entirely different in scale and horror than what the Nazis did in the East, in the occupied lands, Poland, Lithuania, etc. Um, and that's where millions of Jews by design were murdered. And we know that because the choice was made by Truman and Jackson to do a trial, to do it largely on documents, to present evidence, to give the defendants a chance to defend themselves, not to just line them up and shoot them. If, if that had happened instead of a trial, we would have you know, sort of rumors and descendants of rumors and historical assertions, but we wouldn't have an evidentiary basis, which the world had from 1945, 46 forward to begin to wrap minds around what 6 million exterminated was as a design and an accomplishment and to build a historiography on that. So modern human rights awareness, Holocaust knowledge, anti-Holocaust teaching, et cetera, all sort of stands on the platform that was Nuremberg. Yeah, you know, I'm really intrigued by this. Uh, I, I guess it's an, a, an obvious point that just one that I had never really sort of brought to the front of my mind and, and really thought about, but the liberation of the camps is largely taking place in that spring, you know, in 45. I mean, some, it has started in 44, but really this, this it, it's coming out in, in bits and pieces, little dribs and drabs in terms of the horror of this and people getting their minds around it. You know, it's, it's easy for us to forget that people didn't automatically know right. just how horrific this is. No, and people did know even before that. I mean, Truman spoke about what was going on in Europe even when he was a Senator. So there was, it was clear that something was going on, but the scope and scale of it, as you say, I wanted to share a quick, um, have you respond to a, a quote that I, I'm gonna pull up here that I saw. Uh, I, I had a unique opportunity last evening to tour the Auschwitz exhibit that's at Union Station in Kansas City. And I know not all of you live in the Kansas City region, but if you are in the area and you haven't seen it, you, you need to definitely go see it. It's, it's absolutely uh, stunning and horrible. I don't know how, what, the right, what the right words are, but it's, it's very impactful. It's, it's a very, and there was one quote that I wanted to share with you all and get your reaction because I think this notion of bringing the horrors of the Holocaust to light, as you've all talked about. Um, this had to do with children. And this comes from um, an SS, uh, a former SS uh, Auschwitz, uh, stationed at Auschwitz. And he said, the children, they're not the enemy at the moment. The enemy is the blood inside them. The enemy is the growing up to be a Jew that could become dangerous. And because of that, the children were included as well. And I, I just, I, I stopped dead in my tracks when I read that. And th this, was, this was much later, this, this interview that I read. But, but I think that, I, I don't think that was an unusual uh, uh, thought for these, for these people who were on trial. Uh, can, can you talk about that? The fact that they had to account for not just that they were waging war 
and you talked about, we talked about the rules of war a little earlier, but that it was fair game in their mind that the Jews were such an enemy that it was okay to kill the children because they would grow up to be Jewish and then we would have to fight them too. I, I just, I just wonder if that is, was this an, was this an outtake or is this, I mean, a one-off, I guess I should say, or is it, is this uh, something that was more prevalent? This is the racist command principle that was Nazism. Uh, mm -hmm. Hitler was the law and the Fuhrer oath was to follow his decrees and his anti-Semitic pronouncements, et cetera, you know, from Mein Kampf forward in the 1920s and obviously his governing in the 30s and direct orders down a chain of command, he mm -hmm. to Heinrich Himmler, Himmler to Adolf Eichmann, Eichmann to the commandants running the extermination camps like Auschwitz in Poland were charged with eradicating Jews from the European continent. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, this came up in, in various ways in the trial. Uh, one witness called by the Americans, uh, a Nazi party member, uh, military officer, SS member named Otto Ohlendorf, mm -hmm. was a government witness in this trial and then was prosecuted in a subsequent trial because he was part of these mobile killing teams called Einsatzgruppen. And mm -hmm. he was unapologetic and unambiguous in disclosing what they had done, because to him, it was following the Fuhrer's orders, right. and those were the only law that mattered. So, so during the international trial, when Ollendorf is testifying, the Russian judge interrupts and says, um, you know, what about the children? You were ordered to kill Jews and commissars, and you also killed all these children. And Ollendorf responds, well, the order was that the Jewish population should be totally exterminated. And the judge, Nikachenko, says, including the children. And Ollendorf says, yes. And Nikachenko says, and were all the Jewish children murdered? And Ollendorf says, yes. Mm. It was a belief system. It's, you know, racial, racist, mm -hmm. eugenic madness. Mm -hmm. But that was the system. And that's what they're discovering in this courtroom. They're getting direct testimony from witnesses in Berlin to these extermination orders. They're getting people like Ollendorf, who was a field commander of killing teams. The commandant of Auschwitz is captured and brought to the trial and testifies in 1946 about what he did running this extermination factory. And so that's sort of dawning knowledge over the course of the Nuremberg trial year. Mm -hmm. it, it's just it's just chilling. Go ahead, Joe. Well, and, you know, Kristen had mentioned, <clears throat> excuse me, Griffin mentioned earlier how, um, like the the Nuremberg laws, the 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 Nazis' proclamation that takes away Jews' citizenship rights, who they can marry, the ability to borrow money, they they're really stripping away their their freedoms. And one of the things that comes after World War II and the Holocaust, as we get, begin to realize just how horrific this was. Um, and, and I'm, I'm sure John, the law professor, can speak more to this than I could, but the idea of, of legal positivism, that you have to follow the law because the law says so. But in Nazi Germany, the law was immoral in this case, where it was, it was totally lawful to discriminate and persecute minority groups like Jews. And so what happens as a result of the Nuremberg trial and these, these efforts to bring to justice these Nazis is that the international community recognizes just because it's lawful in your country mm -hmm. doesn't mean that it should be the law. 
that, and that's one of the things that comes after the Nuremberg trial, something that's called the Nuremberg principles, that international law supersedes national law in this particular instance where the national law is just immoral. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's a very interesting concept. You know, we had a question, I want to talk a little bit in the in time that we've got left here about the sort of the legacy of these trials and what they mean to us today. And uh, someone asked an interesting question about um, what impact, if any, did the experience at the Nuremberg trials uh, contribute to the trials for Japanese war criminals? Is there any, do you, do you, is there a parallel or any, any lessons learned that were applied in, in that sense? A, a little bit. That's a very complicated question. But the Japanese uh, adjudication process is trailing Nuremberg by about mm -hmm. six months. So the architecture of what's set up in Japan under mm -hmm. the direct command and control of General MacArthur and mm -hmm. the American military occupation, much more than the civilian participation and shaping of what was happening in Germany, even though Germany was also under military occupation, follows the Nuremberg template. Uh, and they do set up an international tribunal and they do prosecute defendants for a range of crimes, the centerpiece of which is aggression. Um, they have, I think, a much less liberal system of information disclosure, discovery, the ability of people to call witnesses, the choice of counsel for defendants that was part of Nuremberg. Uh, mm -hmm. And I don't want to cast aspersions on it, but unlike Nuremberg, which produced a mixed verdict, some convicted, some acquitted, some sentenced to death, others not, um, across the board, everybody in the Japanese international tribunal is convicted and sentenced to death. So there's, there's much more of a command uh, mm -hmm. directive nature. More of a kind less, of a military, more military and less judicial, yes, it sounds yes, like, the way you yes. describe it, yeah. Yes. Um, Kristen, when you think about the work that, that, uh, that you do at the center and the legacy of Justice Jackson, now his legacy is obviously, there's a lot more to it than Nuremberg. I mean, he's obviously, uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of topics for you to cover, but why are we talking about Nuremberg 75 years later? Well, I think part of it is that story I relayed uh, from, from our experience in Nuremberg. And I saw one of the questions was that uh, on, on a tour, someone had of Germany, they were, they were told that children, all children are taught these lessons. Mm -hmm. And that is true if you are of a certain age. So um, they, the Germans really started teaching these lessons um, across the country in the 80s. And so if you were a child somewhere between 46 and let's say early to mid 80s, these lessons weren't part of, of, your, of your instruction and, and your, your makeup. Um, but it is something that they are very, very careful to, to teach the students today. Um, I also, from, from our perspective, this laid the foundation basically for every uh, international criminal trial that has happened since. And so these same crimes are what are codified in the Rome Statute. They are the underpinnings of um, the, the tribunals that were held in Yugoslavia and Rwanda and Sierra Leone. And so these are still the rules under which the international humanitarian legal world is operating today. And I don't think the general public understands that the roots are here in Jackson and Truman and in Nuremberg and in these trials. 
um, but that they continue on today. We, we don't talk a lot about those, those international incidents. Um, we don't talk about how um, the warlords and the dictators and authoritarian leaders are potentially brought to justice today. There have been recent articles about the treatment of the Uyghurs um, in China and various other minority ethnic groups around the world. Um, and all of those relate back to this. Mm -hmm. It is unsettling when we see the degree to which, you know, even the term ethnic cleansing or, or, or you know, these, these things that happen in trying to purify a certain region or area, that this is, this has not gone away, you know, and our, our way of dealing with it, I think really, as you very articulately put it, is, is shaped by what these leaders and, and these people who are involved in, in the Nuremberg trials. Um, oh, and Kurt, can I add one more thing there? Please do, Joseph. I, I really I agree with Kristen. You can really draw a line from Nuremberg in 1945 all the way up to the International Criminal Court that came into uh, force in 2002. Mm -hmm. um, and so whereas Nuremberg was a temporary or an ad hoc trial, uh, same thing with Tokyo. These were temporary, Yugoslavia, Rwanda. Mm -hmm. those, those courts spring up for a specific purpose. And then once they have finished their work, everybody leaves and they go home. But the International Criminal Court that exists today is permanent. Mm -hmm. And I always like to point out when I teach this material to any audience is that the United States was very heavily involved in the Nuremberg trial. And today, the International Criminal Court, the United States is not a member of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what would, if, if, if this were your... Um, if this were your classroom, Joseph and uh, an eager student in the back raised their hand and said, you know, how would the world in your final lecture, you're wrapping up, you're giving them the whole meaning of the semester of these courts, how important this has been. Um, what kind of world would we live in today if Nuremberg had not occurred, if the Nuremberg trials had not occurred, if Truman had not appointed Jackson, if Jackson had not agreed to go, if they had not done this work and, and built, as, as John spoke earlier, the evidentiary uh, uh, case to put against these war criminals, how would the world, I mean, in practical terms, how do you see the world would be different today? It would be much easier for people to deny the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. Without the evidentiary record, and this was one of Jackson's triumphs, he really pushed hard for documents. He wanted to use the defendant's own words against them and so he really pushed hard for documents. Some of the other allies wanted to have witnesses and get survivor testimony. And Jackson pushed documents because that was irrefutable evidence that the things the defendants were accused of, we have a record here that shows this is what they did. So millions and millions of documents that the US Army had to go through mm -hmm. for the trial. And I, I think as, as a historian, because I teach classes on this, I would use as a counter to Nuremberg and the Holocaust, I would talk about um, World War I and the Armenian genocide, mm -hmm. because there really weren't any effective trials after World War I to prosecute different groups who persecuted the Armenians in the Ottoman Empire. And because of that, there, it's been it's been so much easier to deny Forget. the Armenian genocide, yeah. Yeah. and only recently this year did the United States, with President Biden, actually call the Armenian genocide a genocide. Mm 
-hmm. for a hundred years, we wouldn't even call it a genocide. Yeah. And so I, I think that the Nuremberg trial really makes it impossible for any rational person to deny that the Holocaust happened. And that's part of Nuremberg's legacy. It really did make it so that we have all this overwhelming evidence. Mm -hmm. right. No, that's a great, that's a great takeaway. Absolutely. Go ahead, John. I, I would add two things. I think um, the 75 years of peace on the European continent are, of course, you know, a complicated Cold War shaped nuclear armed reality, uh, but is part of the achievement of Nuremberg, um, showing the public in a public trial on an evidentiary basis, what military aggression had wrought, um, both in the human rights realm, but just in the pure destructive realm, educated and I think unified and pacified that continent, which twice in 30 years had been destroyed. Um, that is an achievement. Um, second, the Holocaust reality knowledge uh, that we have is an achievement, and we wouldn't have that in nearly the way we do. And I think, thirdly, we would not have the kind of robust human rights, uh, international law, institutions, awareness, vocabulary, commitments that we have around the world. Of course, it's very hard to deliver on them. It takes power and consensus. 1945 was kind of a sweet spot where... Mm -hmm there had been a world war and the world had won and yeah. the world had all the power and the world was going to hold accountable the perpetrators who had started this and the worst of what they had done. Um, and, you know, since then, of course, the bipolar world and um, all kinds of things mean there's less consensus, but there's value consensus, at least to a large measure about what human rights are, what decent treatment of peoples are, is and what governments can be expected to do if they're legitimate governments uh, in terms of elections, democracy, representation, and treatments of their populations. And that is all consciousness, awareness, value propositions that grow out of Nuremberg. Mm -hmm. No, it, it's, it's really a, a stunning legacy if you think about it. I mean, the accomplishment of uh, bringing, bringing to light in this way. And I was really uh, taken by Joseph's explanation of the Arminian uh, question as well, because it does just fade, recede in history in a way that, that uh, what happened in World War II has not. And yet I fear that we're at a point where we are perhaps losing, and then Kristen's opening comment about, you know, why we do what we do, right? This never again notion, I mean, it's very much, it's Truman-esque in the sense that in the way he said, never again will anyone be able to say that. Well, they'll only not be able to say that if we do our jobs. If we educate people to understand that this can happen again. I mean, this, there, are, there are forces and there, are, there is a forgetting, whether it's willful or whether it's just simply ignorance is almost irrelevant. The fact is, if people don't know what went on and they don't care what went on, then what's going on now does not seem horrific to them when they, when they see individual groups in any nation called out and persecuted. So I appreciate the good work that, uh, that you've all done to help us bring that to remembrance. I, I wanted to uh, conclude with a thought. I, I mentioned that last night I was able to see this Auschwitz exhibit, and it was a very powerful, uh, very powerful exhibit, and and certainly brought to my remembrance uh, some things about about the Holocaust, and it was was very much uh, uh, a very moving experience. And and it ends in a very uh, poignant way. It ends with family films, just home home movies, silent movies of happy families in Europe just prior to the war, just prior to the 
you know, to the to the camps and the final solution and all of that. And you see these uh, families, Jewish families, and they're they're at the beach, they're on vacation, they're they're playful, they're laughing, and uh, and and I guess my question or my my sort of it's more of an editorial question, I suppose. But can you imagine? It's one thing for us to say, how is the world different? because the Nuremberg trials happened. And I think you've all given superb answers to that. But I'd like us to think about how would the world be different if the Nuremberg trials didn't need to happen? What would it be if instead of having to hunt down war criminals and prosecute them for, for these horrific acts of violence and crimes against humanity and against children, I often think in these terms when I confront this subject, how many symphonies were not written? How many books, how much poetry, how many medical breakthroughs, how many businesses, how many inventions, how many family vacations simply did not occur because of what went on in the Third Reich. And it's just, it's just heavy and stunning to think about that. But, but I think it's so important what you all have done. And I, I'm just so grateful to you for your time and your expertise this evening to share with us because I think that we do need to confront this. We need to confront it because it has not gone away. Um, what, what happened in, in the aftermath or what happened during World War II can be just as easily forgotten as what happened in World War I, as Joseph pointed out earlier. So I hope that our, our listening audience is, uh, is appreciative of all that, uh, all that you've brought to this discussion. And uh, I, I certainly wanna thank you all for, for, uh, for helping us to remember just how important uh, what went on there in Nuremberg and, and with, our, with our two protagonists, with Justice Jackson and with Harry Truman, uh, both of whom we admire greatly. They have a lot in common. We've talked about that in other programs and hopefully will again. So I'll thank the panelists. And I think if Morgan is still there in the background somewhere, she'll come forward. Thank you, Kurt. Thank you, Joseph, John, Kristen, and Kurt for sharing your time and talents with us this evening and for the work that each of you do to preserve the history of this event so that it can be shared and studied by future generations. Don't miss these upcoming programs, including the third installment of our Whistle Stop Tour of the all-new Truman Library, Captain Harry and World War I with Dennis G. and Greco, you can find more information and register for this event and other programs on our website, trumanlibraryinstitute.org. For more information on Robert Jackson, you can visit the Robert H. Jackson Center online at roberthjackson.org or sign up for the Jackson List, a newsletter written and distributed by John. Register at thejacksonlist.com. Thanks again to our panelists this evening and thank you everyone for joining us. Good night. You have been listening to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, presented in collaboration with Chautauqua Institution. Our podcast is edited by Emily Schroeder. Original theme music for Liberty Under Law by Bryson Barnes. I'm Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center and your host. The Jackson Center's mission is to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, United States Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. We envision a world 
for the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. As a nonprofit organization, the Jackson Center's mission is made possible in great part through philanthropic gifts. To learn more about the Jackson Center, our programming, and how you can support our mission, please visit www.roberthjackson.org. You can connect with us and ask questions of our guests through our website. We're also on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, remember to subscribe, check out our other podcast episodes and Facebook live events, and share with your friends. Thank you.